Welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 27th of October with me, B. Stevenson, covering for Ian Welsh. Ian recently spoke with Nabaran Sengupta, Senior Manager for Sustainability, Climate and Equity at Deloitte. They spoke about the role of the new Task Force for Nature-Related Financial Disclosure Framework and how companies are approaching nature-related risks and disclosures. That's to come. First, though, is our regular roundup of some sustainable business news. European Parliament's Committee on Industry, Research and Energy has taken a significant step towards promoting EU-based manufacturing of low-carbon technologies by voting in favour of the Net Zero Industry Act's draft report. The proposed act, echoing the European Commission's March unveiling, aims to have at least 40% of clean energy technologies, including components for wind turbines, heat pumps, solar panels, renewable hydrogen production and carbon capture and storage, manufactured in the EU by 2030. By promoting EU-based supply chains for renewables, the EU seeks to compete with the US Inflation Reduction Act and reduce its dependence on Chinese imports. The Net Zero Industry Act also outlines plans for cleaner economy investment, streamlined permitting for clean energy and carbon storage projects, enhanced data sharing on key initiatives and training for 100,000 individuals within three years. While the move has been well received, there is a call for more ambitious and detailed plans to address key competitive challenges and build a whole economy strategy. Green industry thought leaders suggest expanding the Act to include sectors where the EU is already a leader, such as energy efficiency, materials circularity and the food industry, with a stronger focus on sustainability targets and metrics. At COP28 this year, the central issue is likely to be countries' differing perspectives on the pace of fossil fuel phase-outs. Leading businesses have made their perspective known this week, as a coalition of 131 influential companies including Nestle, Unilever, Mahindra Group and Volvo, is calling upon political leaders to establish a clear timeline for the phase-out of fossil fuels at the meeting in late November. With a combined global annual revenue of approaching $1 trillion, these companies emphasise that COP28 participants must commit to achieving 100% decarbonised power systems by 2035 for wealthier economies and extend financial support to developing nations to enable them to transition away from fossil fuels by 2040 at the latest. In a joint open letter entitled Fossil to Clean, coordinated by the We Mean Business Coalition, the companies expressed the urgent need to accelerate the adoption of clean energy while simultaneously reducing fossil fuel use and production. The signatories represent diverse sectors, ranging from multinationals to small and medium-sized enterprises. While many companies are setting their own emissions reductions targets, they acknowledge that meaningful progress depends on governments taking swifter action. In its new report, the International Energy Agency has underlined the gravity of the need for governments to phase out fossil fuels, warning that their production remains far too high to prevent catastrophic global warming. In the latest World Energy Outlook report, the IEA recognises the remarkable growth of clean energy technologies such as solar, wind, electric cars and heat pumps. $1 billion a day are now spent on solar development, with the EIA estimating that more than 500 gigawatts of renewable capacity will be installed globally this year, with solar leading the way. Global investment across all clean energy technologies in 2023 is on track to be 40% higher than in 2020. However, the report underscores that the continued consumption of oil, gas and coal undermines the global transition to renewable energy. 
the IEA states that current demand for fossil fuels is projected to exceed the levels required to achieve the Paris Agreement's objective of limiting global temperature increases to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Inaction could result in global average temperature rises of around 2.4 degrees Celsius by the end of the century, significantly exceeding the Paris Agreement's threshold. The report calls for world leaders to thoroughly prepare for an orderly decline in the use of fossil fuels. Ian Welsh recently spoke with Nabaran Sengupta, Senior Manager for Sustainability, Climate and Equity at Deloitte, about the TNFD's new framework launched in September, and whether nature-related risks have been overshadowed by too narrow a business focus on carbon. They also discussed some reasons to be hopeful about positive momentum on nature-based approaches. What for you are the areas where the TNFD have got it right, and where do you think there's some room for improvement? So the task force for nature-related financial disclosures, it's been a while in the making. There's been multiple beta versions, and now, of course, we have a version 1.0, which was released on September 18th. I think there are a lot of positive takeaways from the latest iteration. Firstly, there's more clarity on materiality. Organizations now have the option to use different materiality assessment approaches. And then, of course, TNFT recommends certain approaches that are aligned with certain definitions of baselines that the ISSB, the International Sustainability Standards Board, defines as well. The second is that there is a common methodology that's now being suggested for assessing nature-related issues. The TNFT has suggested a LEAP approach. So it's a four-step approach, which has an acronym of LEAP. And I love my acronyms. This really provides us an opportunity to look at certain disclosure indicators and certain metrics that companies can use as well. So more specificity there. Thirdly, there is a method that's been defined around scaling the reporting maturity with the growing expectations in global mandatory nature-related reporting. I think the TNFD will really provide the market with an instrument to respond better to it. The TNFD does this by recommending certain disclosure indicators and metrics. Then when we go into the risk scenarios area, the TNFD has also provided four tailored nature scenarios that is closely linked to physical and transition risk scenarios. And we believe that that's incredibly important for organizations to look ahead and be more proactive in identifying climate-related scenarios and what they can do to, uh, to mitigate those risks. And then finally, there's better alignment across standards. As we all know, the space of environmental social governance or ESG it really sometimes becomes an alphabet soup. There's so many different standards setting bodies. There isn't too much of clarity of how they overlap and how they can be a unifying approach. TNFD has taken some steps towards that so that the disclosure recommendations provided by them are more interoperable across the different standards as well. I guess the last bit is about the room for improvement. I would say that there needs to be continued handholding and guidance provided to industries and sectors in adopting this framework and lowering the barriers to compliance. I've lost count of the number of conversations that I've had in the past few weeks where organizations are still a little unsure and are still finding their feet on how to apply double materiality, what data points need to be measured, how to ensure the right methodology is used. And then, of course, when the rubber hits the road, it's about measuring the data, having supply chain coordination, and really bringing assurance to the systems and the data that you're using. So there's a lot of ground to be covered. Organizations are a little apprehensive around this. And I think that's where the biggest room for improvement is in the future. 
From your work with your clients then, how are you seeing the corporate appetite to get to thinking about nature-related risks changing? At the macro level, more than half of the global GDP is either moderately or highly dependent on nature and its services. This includes the provisions for raw material, for water, recreation, tourism opportunities, flooding, erosion, wildfires, and of course, carbon sequestration. So it's not really a matter of appetite. It's really about organizations, governments, and people waking up to the realization that there's such an important role that nature plays, and there's so much that we take for granted over there. And of course, then taking concrete steps to protect your business from the significant risk that you're exposed to. So the basic truth is this, that a company's ability to bring its goods to the market relies on its ability to source natural resources as economic inputs into its business model. Now, when those inputs itself decline or the natural resources decline, then a company can no longer obtain those economic inputs and hence its ability to generate revenue or even stay in business is significantly impaired. So what we are seeing is that companies are now taking the view of nature not only being related to operational risks like wildfires or floods and how they impact their operations, but also a financial risk as well. We typically lead these discussions with our clients through a focus on nature capital and provide a means to assess, quantify, and measure these risks in more financial terms. Do you think that companies have become a bit too carbon focused? It's easy to understand why. Obviously, climate change is a pressing issue of our time. But do you think had there been a focus too much on carbon rather than the other issues which are so important too? Due to the long-standing debates and public narratives that you have had related to carbon sequestration or the impact of carbon and greenhouse gases on the environment for the past few decades, the appreciation for carbon management is definitely higher. In comparison, nature-related risks and the climate and nature interdependence is something which is a relatively newer understanding. As organizations are moving from making commitments to effecting change in this area, there's a growing realization that they can't move the big boulders on carbon or adequately address the transition risks that, that really imperil their future business objectives without addressing the nature impacts first. I like to be an optimistic person. So I don't think what was done in the past is a measure of how it will be in the future. So with TNFD being closely aligned to the other acronym, TCFD, that is the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, we can hope that there's a future where disclosure standards are harmonized and also people's understanding that all of these climate, environment, nature, resource intensity, and how that impacts planetary health and human health, how they are so closely connected with each other. I'm hopeful that that understanding will continue to grow and we'll move from a carbon-focused view to something which is more holistic around planetary health. All of this require incentives to be set across value chains to enable progress to be made. How do you think incentives should be better aligned to drive improvements in behaviour? There's definitely a carrot and stick approach over here. So we all know what the stick is. Increasingly stringent focus on disclosures and reporting, increasing focus on greenwashing standards, and of course, increased scrutiny from a wide variety of stakeholders, whether it's investors or it's government bodies or local constituents as well. So we know the stick part of it really well. 
from a carrot approach or how can you have better incentives, it's really about understanding that how the resources that you are utilizing as economic inputs can be utilized in a more effective way and also nurture your long-term value. Think of it in this way. We have grown up thinking that organizations really utilize their supply chain as a competitive differentiator. Now, there's a growing understanding that not only is your supply chain and how you have oriented your supply chain a competitive differentiator, it's also about how you're in harmony with natural resources, how your future business strategies are really aligning with the changing climate and the changing environment. And of course, how you're protecting and you're resilient for that future. A big part of what we are focusing our discussions with our clients and organizations on is thinking of it from a resiliency standpoint. What can you do in terms of protecting the value and avoiding the erosion of capital by focusing on the problems here and now in terms of natural resources, in terms of biodiversity issues, and then also trying to bring multiple participants into this. When you're talking about supply chain coordination, you can't have one organization dictating terms. You really need to be able to spread awareness and spread the benefits of following this nature-based approach as well. Obviously, you have credits, grants, and incentives that are provided by governments where there are uh, multiple ways by which those uh, steps that are taken to protect nature and biodiversity are provided grants and incentives. Secondly, there are governments that are also using uh, debt-based methods by which they are protecting biodiversity, they're protecting certain natural resources as well, and they're raising capital as a part of that. And then finally, I think as the carbon markets continue to mature as well, there'll be a greater relevance of how you can manage your carbons, either through offsets or insets, which at the base level is really about protecting natural resources and ensuring that there's a regenerative method around it. There are financial ways of incentives. There are structural and strategic ways by which you're bringing resiliency to your business model. And then there is the supply chain coordination aspect of it, which really can differentiate you versus your competitors as well. I feel that across those three dimensions, with the progress made and with the hope for the future, there should be sufficient incentives for driving better behaviours. As you just alluded to, accusations of greenwashing are most certainly back. However, I wonder if an environment where companies are applauded for setting stretching goals with an acceptance that they might fail to achieve them would not be more helpful than one where companies are wary to innovate. What do you think? I'd like to share a slightly different perspective here, Ian. In today's environment, there's definitely a growing understanding and an acceptance that organizations that embed sustainability in their strategy have a longer-term growth trajectory that is more sustainable, for lack of a better term, as well as has the rewards that really differentiate it versus an unsustainable growth strategy. This, in turn, has been rewarded by investors through greater investment and by customers through an amplified brand loyalty. These old claims that organizations make, whether it's climate or nature-related, are also being increasingly supported by government grants and incentives. So that means if you put it all together, when you're making bold commitments as an organization, you are rewarded by a more resilient strategy. You are rewarded by your constituents in terms of better brand loyalty. You are also rewarded for the stewardship role that you're playing by better grants and incentives and access to capital. 
all of these are, I believe, sufficient incentives for organizations to really make bold commitments, even though there is a looming specter of greenwashing. I would like to make a slight distinction here. When an organization fails to meet its commitments, it's not necessarily a greenwashing situation. What does trigger a greenwashing investigation is when companies say that they have achieved certain targets, but there's limited to no assurance behind those claims. We all know of some of these anecdotally where there are investigations made for not being able to substantiate claims of, let's say, eco-friendly products. Those are classic cases where greenwashing is really imperiling certain organizations. In my experience, I feel organizations are quite prudent in assessing the achievability of their goals. And what may help them further in this is by taking up risk-based scenarios analysis. And we talked about TNFT introducing some of those scenario-based approaches. You get a better perspective that where can you make bold commitments? Where do you have the wherewithal to be able to back that in terms of tangible actions? And how can you bring an assurance-based approach by which you can prove the claims that you're making and substantiate that in terms of a differentiated product or service? I guess my point was more around the ability for companies to be bold and transparent around when they fail to achieve what they want to achieve, but then they need to give them the space to remediate, to improve their behaviours and to get to where they publicly said they want to get to. I guess that's the environment that for me certainly works best. How can companies best engage or move towards regulatory compliance, particularly with the new, more stricter rules coming in, for example, in California and in the EU? How do you advise your clients to move towards stricter compliance? Definitely, there are some foundation that needs to be made up, which needs to be put in place, starting with your strategy, your long-term growth aspirations, where you want to operate as a business and what markets as well as products and services you want to take. Relooking at that strategy is the first starting point or the first stop on your train journey. Once you have your strategy in place, which really reflects the changing landscape from a climate and nature standpoint and a changing landscape in terms of sustainable growth, then you really move into the operations and execution of it. And that's where most of the companies that we talk to really at that juncture of their vision of what their future growth needs to be. Here, the focus really needs to be on having the structures and the mechanisms in place so that you know whom you need to be partnering with. You have established KPIs, metrics, and measures by which you're capturing the right data and then having tangible ways by which you're measuring that performance, validating it. And finally, the last stage is really reporting. Now, what we have seen is that some organizations tend to skip to the end and they start with reporting. There is a new regulation or there's a new disclosure requirement and how do I comply with it? We believe that that is the last stop. Before that, you really need to establish the foundations in terms of data capture, in terms of technology required to be able to validate performance metrics, the measurement systems by which you are evaluating performance as well, whether it's of people or if it's of systems or it's of supply chain partners. And then, of course, having the coordination and collaboration aspects of it, where you have to realize that you cannot go at this alone. You need your partners around you following the same strategy, having the same aspirations and meaningfully targeting a shift longer term towards more sustainable growth approaches. It's really about the technology assurance aspects that really need to be forming that bedrock or that foundation, especially when we are going into more onerous 
regulatory frameworks. And we are seeing that across a number of countries and regions. Having that backbone in terms of how strategy is tied to operations, how operations is tied to performance metrics, and then finally into your partnerships. I think that's really going to be the important aspect for most of the organizations moving forward. It does really feel like there's some positivity at the moment and there's reasons for positivity. What will you be looking for in terms of indicators that this positive momentum that we seem to be getting into now is maintained? What are you looking for going forward? Definitely better and greater adoption of the NFT frameworks. That would be a great marker by which you are indicating that more organizations are buying into this approach and are buying into the need for assessing nature impacts, the need for mitigating it and for effectively disclosing it as well. Secondly, science-based targets. Within the SBTI or science-based targets initiative, there are forest, land and agriculture guidances as well. Aligning with that indicates that you are following a science-based approach in determining what your targets are that you want to achieve, in measuring your performance in a tangible manner, and doing that in a way by which it can be measured across as a representation of the entire industry and sector. Following science-based target norms, and we are seeing an uptick of that in terms of companies adopting it, that gives me a lot of positivity as well. And then finally, there is a lot of emphasis that needs to be placed on looking at this as an overall ecosystem. Whether you're looking at the climate and nature nexus, or you're looking at how you, your suppliers, your customers, your constituents, and your end consumers are interlinked in terms of this strategy and in terms of executing a more sustainable growth parameter, there are indicators that I am seeing of many companies grouping together, forming industry collaborations or consortiums. I'm seeing a lot of positive movement in terms of collaborations with universities as well, which really indicates that there is a need to change the paradigm. There's a need in terms of how do you use cutting-edge research? How do you use use case-based approach by which you are actually solving for the problems of now with the technology innovations of the future? So that, again, gives me a lot of heart. And then finally, what really gets me excited is the harnessing of technology. I've seen so many companies that are pioneering innovations in this area, whether it's around remote sensing technologies, whether it's around predictive capabilities. So the harnessing of technology, the use of AI, the use of the data that we are utilizing as well, and the interconnectedness in terms of companies or organizations working across borders. I think that gives me a lot of enthusiasm. As I said, I'm an optimistic person, so I look for for the light in these situations. Thanks very much for pointing out some of the reasons for for optimism and for taking us through so much around the real benefits potentially from the Task Force on Nature-Related Financial Disclosures. So yes, Nabarin Sengupta from Deloitte, thank you very much indeed. Thanks, thanks so much, Ian. As always, the Innovation Forum website is the place to go for the usual analysis and interviews. Look out for the audio and video recordings of our recent webinar with Everland on Red Plus projects and human rights. We'll be back with the podcast next Thursday, back with Ian. But that's it for now. I've been B. Stevenson, and until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.